Uh, as we're continuing our look at the book of uh, Galatians, we find ourselves in chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20 this morning. Um, and as you pull that up, let's, uh, I want to do a little compare and contrast with you here, okay? Uh, I want to read you a sentence or two of, uh, of, uh, that, um, that begin other letters that Paul also wrote to churches, okay? So after the initial greeting, when he gets into the uh, meat of the letter, what he's writing them to talk about. So this is uh, how he began the letter to a church in Thessalonica. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's what he says. Just imagine that you are a part of this congregation, okay? That you were in uh, with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you were reading aloud this letter you got from the Apostle Paul. Imagine how this would hit you. This is what he says. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That would be really sweet, right? I mean, that, like, wouldn't you love to, be, to hear these words read over you? Okay, this is Philippians. Paul wrote to a church he helped plant in the city of Philippi, and this is where... This is how he started. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, like Paul knows how to write a letter that strikes the chords of the heart, right? I mean, he knows how to express deep love and deep affection. Okay. We looked at this several months ago when we began this series, but here's how he began his letter to the Galatians. I am astonished. Thank you. I appreciate that. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He hits a slightly different tone in this letter, doesn't he? And I think it would be tempting, really, really easy, to look at this letter and this passage in particular that we're about to read and think Paul is against these people, that he's fundamentally opposed to them. But I think that would be a mistake. Because I think what we're really looking at is the posture of a pastor who's deeply concerned for people that he loves. That he's concerned both for the prevalence of false teaching. There are people teaching them things that are wrong. But he's also concerned about the prevalence of deceptively winsome cultural pressures. And both of those things are opposed to gospel truth in their hearts and in their community together as a, as a teacher, as a, as a, as a gospel community. And, uh, and I think that what we look at, what we're looking at here as we look at this letter, is this is what it looks like. For, for, for Paul to speak truth, even hard truth, to people he loves. And that's what we're looking at this morning is another section of just Paul giving us an example of what it looks like to speak the truth in love. Let's look together. This is chapter 4. I'll read verses 8 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be among us this morning, drawing near to us and stirring our hearts with gratefulness for you. And that you would be speaking to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. That you would go to work in our very hearts, telling us the things that we need to hear this morning from this passage. I pray that you would give us a renewed openness to hearing from you, that you would help us to be present. And Lord, I pray that you would help me, your servant, to love you well, to love these people well, and to honor you by, with the things that I say this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we began this series way back in the fall, all the way back when we read those verses earlier, I mentioned to you that like much of the Bible, when we read Galatians, we're reading somebody else's mail. And when we read this letter, it really feels like an open letter of concern that he wrote. And so just for fun, uh, just an insight about what can be fun, I read other open letters of concern that have been written through history um, for giggles. It's a lovely way to spend your free time if you're interested at all. There are plenty to choose from. Uh, I read Jacques. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Somebody who might be able to speak French. But that was written by Emile Zola in 1898 about the Richard Dreyfus affair. Um, Really fascinating letter. Of course, I also read Bill Gates' famous letter that was written to hobbyists early in his career because they were stealing his software. Uh, I read, oh, this is the best name ever. I read a letter written by a guy named Siegfried Sassoon's. He was uh, a member of the British Army, and he wrote a letter to British military leadership about why he would not be returning to, uh, to the trenches in World War I to fight. But of course, the one that I returned to the most often was written here in this city, uh, not far from where we are right now. And uh, of course, that's Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And uh, it's a letter that I've actually returned to often uh, over the years. And of course, I always read it uh, in weekends like this one. And what strikes me about that letter is his tone. 
the tone of that letter. Now, just to let you know what is going on, he wrote that letter in response to another open letter of concern that white clergymen like me here in Birmingham wrote to him with concern about uh, some of the demonstrations that were going on in relation to the civil rights movement. And he wrote a letter back to, to them. And it's really impressive because he wrote it on the margins of a newspaper and with scraps of paper that were fed to him while he was in jail. And he wrote it just simply articulating why their work and uh, the way that it looks was not only justified but necessary if they were going to see meaningful change in the city with regard to race. But listen, he was writing to these white clergymen as a fellow reverend, and he strikes a tone of brotherhood. And when you read it, you get this unmistakable sense that even as he's articulating clear disappointments, that he is writing with a heart to win these people. In fact, he's writing with a heart that is burdened for them. And I bring this up only because I think we're looking at something similar when we look here at this letter in Galatians. That Paul is deeply burdened for people that he loves. And there are several that we could name here in this passage, but I'm just going to give you two, okay? I'm going to give you two. Two burdens that Paul has for for these, uh, these Galatian Christians that he loves. First is his burden that they would know. And second is their burden, his burden that they would become. So I'm going to talk to you about knowing and becoming. First, knowing. Paul begins by talking about their relationship with God. Okay? And he uses knowing language. He says in verse 9, you have come to know God or become known by God. Now listen, in the Bible... When the Bible talks about knowing, is, that is very relational language. It is, it is to be familiar or intimate with someone. It, it, it's, it doesn't just mean to know about something. It means to know someone. And so he says, you came into a relationship with God. You knew him and he knows you. And then he begins to lay out in that paragraph alternatives to knowing God. He, he names them. The first is, he says, in the beginning, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not God. That's an alternative to knowing God. And when he's talking about that by nature to those things that are not God, he is talking about false idols in Galatia. One of the challenges of being a confessing Christian in the Greco-Roman world was simply the the worship of, uh, of idols or false gods. These could range from household deities, little statues that you could buy in the marketplace. You set them up around your home, and that would be a place where you could worship or pray. Or or they could be um, a pilgrimage to a major city where you would see a massive temple. But it would be incredibly, there would be incredible pressure to worship these these false gods uh, in, in the area that they lived. Not only because everybody was doing it. Uh, all of your neighbors would have been doing it, but also because you were compelled to by Roman law. And he says that was that he lists that as an alternative to knowing God. And he says you left that, which would have been a big deal for them. You left that when you came to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes forward. He says when they came to know God, they left that. But now they're in a situation that's no better because they are flirting with, 
or enchanted by or even coming to practice the Jewish religious calendar. That's the reference that he's making here when he says you're you're observing days and months and seasons and years. He's saying you're trading one alternative to to knowing God for simply another. And this is a big deal, that, that, that they're trading the most precious thing about them. They're knowing God, their relationship with God for these other alternatives. This is profound, because one of the things he's saying to us, and we need to hear this, I think, is that it doesn't matter how religious it might feel. And it doesn't matter how spiritual things might feel. These things, these alternative to, alternatives to knowing God are completely useless when it comes to a real relationship with God. In fact, what he's saying is that there are impediments to knowing God. That, the, that it's damaging their knowing. And what he's doing is he's calling out the false promises that the practice of religion can so often hold out for us. That, that if you are sufficiently dutiful, that if you do the right things and successfully avoid doing the wrong things, that you can structure your life in an extremely, rela- extreme, extremely religious way and it still have nothing to do with your actually knowing God. This whole thing reminds me of the story of John Wesley. Uh, if you're not familiar, he was the son of a pastor and he... He became a pastor himself, and he was described as somebody who was very, very orthodox in faith and full of good works. Um, he was known, listen, he was a great guy. He was, <laughs> he was known for visiting people in prison, and he was known for supplying food and clothing in the streets. But to hear him talk about it, he said, none of that actually had to do with knowing God. He said, I was bound in the fetters of my own religion. And it wasn't until he came to trust in Christ, and Christ only for salvation, that he received uh, an inward assurance that his sins had been taken away. This is the way he described it. He said, I had the faith of a servant, but not the faith of a son. Jesus Christ once said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He who knows me knows the Father. He also told a a famous and familiar story that many of you have probably heard about a father with two sons. And the the younger son was, of course, impetuous and, and indulgent and sought autonomy. And the older son was dutiful and controlling. But they all had this in common, that they wanted the father's inheritance but didn't want to have anything to do with the father. And that one was no better than the other. They wanted the father's inheritance, the father's joy, the father's happiness. But both were alienated from the heart of the father. They didn't want to know him. They wanted alternatives to knowing him. And there are several ways we do this. Am I right? I mean, there are, those household gods are all over the place, religious and irreligious. I mean, we can spend our lives worshiping the idol of success, can we not? Where we think our fulfillment and our happiness is found through accomplishing something, that our worth is all wrapped up in that. We can worship at the idol of beauty, 
where we think our happiness or our fulfillment is found in what we look like and being around other people who look, look a certain way. I could go on and on. We could worship at the, uh, at the idol of, um, oh, oh yes, this is a good one. We can worship at the idol of comfort where we think that our happiness and our fulfillment is, is, is all wrapped up in our ability to insulate ourselves from anything that might threaten us. And listen, just like John Wesley, we can fill our lives with re- like deceptively religious idols as well. Where we can, we can construct a life that looks perfect. Where, where people might look at us and say, where's the flaw? Where we know the words to say and the phrases to use in order to exist. We know what prayers to pray. And we know what to wear. And we know what temptations to not talk about. And the warning that Paul is offering us is saying those things outside of Jesus Christ have nothing to do with knowing God. And so I just want to ask you this simple question. It begs to be asked as we look at this passage. Do you know God? Do you know him? By faith in Jesus, do you know him in your bones? Is it limbic? Does your faith touch your heart? Is Christianity something you do or something you inhabit? Does it fill your soul and grab you? I want you to wrestle with that. Your knowing of God. And when you do, let's add a little salt to that question. Because Paul begins to talk about where knowing leads you. He begins to talk about what you're becoming. And what he does is he sets up a really interesting contrast between what his ministry among them looked like. You see, he recalls some of that. And he also begins to talk about what their, um, their life together with these false teachers are looking like. And he gives us two different contrasts that I want to name. One is a contrast of means, and the other is a contrast of ethos. First, the contrast of means. What he says, and uh, it's really fascinating here, is he's talking about the ways each ministry leader reached the people. What the relationships between the, the, uh, the, the, the leader and the people looked like. And he said, while I was with you, while I was with you, I spoke truth to you. That he uses truth, whereas these false teachers are using flattery. And he says one is concerned about what he's giving to the people, what Paul wants for them, and that these false teachers are mostly concerned about what they can get from the people. They make much of you, but for no good purpose, only that you make much of them, is what he says. That's the contrast in means, that one is concerned about their knowing God, and the other is concerned about building their own platform how much they're known. It's a contrast in means, but there's also a contrast in ethos. And this is really fascinating. That, that, now, when we talk about ethos, what we're talking about, that's an environment conversation. And you can learn a lot about a ministry by the kind of environment that it produces, right? 
And when Paul, Paul talks about his time that he was with them, what, he, what he's talking about is, uh, is a time of sweet mutual service to each other. He says, I originally wasn't even coming to be with you in Galatia, but I was waylaid because of a bodily ailment. We don't know what that was. Could have been, uh, could have been uh, an injury, could have been a sickness or something like that, but that's what had him with them. And while he was with them convalescing, Paul began to plant a church in Galatia. Now, I just got to say, as a pastor, that's super impressive, okay? A few weeks ago, I was uh, sick. You can imagine what got me. And there was no church planning going on during that time. But while he was there, he started attending to their spiritual needs, and he mentions that they were attending to his physical needs at, at significant cost to themselves, that they treated him as Christ Jesus, that they were so devoted to him that they might have even gouged out their eyes. That's hyperbole, but he's just remarking on how sweet their rela- the, 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 the mutual relationship that they had with each other was. That each were coming to the table with each other and from places of need. And it's truly wonderful to behold. That's what I would call, there's no celebrity here in that situation. And it's what I would simply call an ethos of grace. That knowing God through faith in Jesus Christ, that's the kind of community that's built. And then, of course, he contrasts that with the ethos that they're currently experiencing when he says, what has become of your blessedness? That the rich ethos of faith and works is gone. Because Paul says they want to shut you out. And what Paul is describing is how they have built a fence around the community of people and said only if you look a certain way or do certain things can you participate in this place. Now that's an entirely different ethos, isn't it? That's what I would call an ethos of accomplishment or an ethos of perfection or maybe even an ethos of manipulation. And if, if, I could, uh, if I could sum it up one way, I would say that the difference between these two things is that one is characterized by an overwhelming spirit of generosity, while the other is characterized by an overwhelming spirit of stinginess. That one is generous, one was becoming generous because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and one was becoming stingy. So let me ask you this question. As we consider the fruit of what we're becoming together, are we a generous people or are we a stingy people? In my mind, the question runs a little deeper than that. Do we believe in a generous God? When we worship, are we worshiping what we feel, what we know to be a generous God, or do we Worship what we fear is a stingy God. That has every impact on how we live, what kind of character of generosity we inhabit. Because listen, if we believe that God is stingy, if we really believe that, that he is this exacting and demanding father, if, we, if, if the picture of God that we have in our hearts as we seek to draw near to him is that he is in heaven with his arms crossed, with a look of disappointment etched in his face, always wanting more from us, then we will become 
those competitors. We will become those manipulators. We will, we will become those people who are constantly striving to earn God's pleasure that he in his scripture says that we already have. We will be caught up in some kind of a religious arms race that has everything to do with appearance and nothing to do with what's in the heart. But listen, if we believe, as Jesus leads us to believe, that God's love is wide and deep, that in his forgiveness he separates you from your sins as far as the east is from the west, that he's patient with you, that he's kind, and that he right now rejoices over you with loud singing, then we will get a sense of the spirit of generosity that's extended to us. And there will be peace. And there will be freedom to give ourselves away for the sake of those around us. We will become a generous people because because we will become more concerned with the needs around us than our own because our own are already met. In Jesus Christ himself, we will look with little thought to get to taking. And I can tell you, listen, there is great joy to be found in that place. If there's nothing about a miserly spirit that lights up a room, there's great joy to be found in that place. Because there's nothing more refreshing than a gospel-shaped community full of people looking to give themselves away for the sake of the needs around them. There's nothing sweeter than that. Kent Hughes likes to say this, there's no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. He says, we may know some Scrooges who claim to be Christians, but I don't think you can claim Christ and be a stingy person. Generosity is the sign of the regenerate person, is what he says. Now listen, did you hear what he did? He didn't just say, be more generous. Give more away. He connected a spirit of generosity with the generosity of Christ himself. That we can afford to be generous because somebody has been generous to us. That he was so generous to us that he gave everything away for our sake, for the sake of those he loved. And in, this, in, the, in that, that particular quote, he was talking specifically about money. And it, I think it's easy to reduce generosity to just how we think about our money, whether we're generous or we're stingy. But listen, a spirit of generosity affects every nook and cranny of our heart. It affects how we think about our time, how much of our time we give away for the needs of those around us or allow other people into our lives. It affects how we think about the stuff that we have, how we think about our homes, whether we use them to bless others or we think about them primarily about our own good. The spirit of generosity has everything to do with everything we are. And listen, we can feel a freedom of generosity because we know God has been generous to us. And where do we see God's generosity to us the most? In the same place where we feel our knowing of God, we feel God's generosity to us in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And listen, there are several stories in Jesus' life that talk about God's generosity to us. That he embodies it and he talks about it. 
And there's some favorites. There's one where he talks about uh, what the, the, the parable of the great banquet, where he describes his, uh, his father as a master who is so yearning to see his house full of people that can enjoy his, his food. And another fun one is when Jesus was at a wedding feast in John chapter 2. And they, they, uh, the host was going to suffer the embarrassment of running out of wine. And, and Jesus doesn't just, uh, just create new wine. He creates the best wine and gives them far more than they will need. But my favorite is the familiar story of where he fed 5,000 people. He fed 5,000 people on a hillside. And the, the, way, the interplay that he has between him and his disciples is really interesting to look at. Because his disciples came to Jesus and, he, and they said, uh, they, this crowd has been with us for a long while and they are hungry. And they told Jesus to send them away so that they can find themselves something to eat. They said, let them attend to their own needs. And Jesus said, no, we will not do that. You will feed them. And of course, the disciples were thinking, what are we going to feed them with? And then we see the miracle of where he takes five loaves of bread and two fish and, and he gives them, he breaks them up amongst the disciples and somehow they had 12 basketfuls of food left over. And I think it's important that we see that Jesus always had leftovers. That he is so generous to us. And it's this little reminder that we always need more grace than we think. But there is always more grace available to us than we need. So why can we be generous? Because Jesus has been so generous to us. Amen. Let me pray. My Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would give us the deep and loving and lasting sense of all that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. That his love would pervade and infect our hearts such that we love others so well. Give us that call. Help us to inhabit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.